light out. Everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. Joined in the studio with me is my co-host, Austin. What's up, man? Yo, how's it going? I'm good, man. I'm excited for today's episode, yeah, I gotta say. It's gonna be a fun one. And then also, who you guys have met in the last couple of weeks, we've got Daniel behind the scenes, although we do have a camera on him. Daniel actually edits the show for us, among other things. He runs the cameras while we record as well. What's up, man? Hey, everybody. But today, we are going to be diving into a very interesting subject that we've mentioned many a times here on Lights Out, and that is the Ouija board. Specifically, we're going to be covering a number of different stories and cases involving the Ouija board where it has led people to commit heinous crimes, among other horror stories. So we'll be covering several different stories today, which I actually really like these episodes because it's just kind of, you know, rather than doing a deep dive into one thing, we get to cover a bunch of different stories. And this, the way that this episode is going to go is it's going to be start out sort of mild and kind of get progressively worse as we go on. Yeah. But we'll also kind of talk about the history of the Ouija board and towards the end of the episode, we'll even dive into the science behind it because I don't think a lot of people understand that there's actually been a lot of scientific research into the Ouija board yeah, and how cr- it works. Crazy amount of psychology has gone into it, which I didn't realize before we I didn't either. In. I've always just known it as like, you know, a spirit board, a talking board, and you know, there's only this if you believe in the paranormal or believe in the spiritual realm, this is a device or instrument to help you connect with it. But is it a game? Yeah, that's how it's sold. You can go down to your local Target right now and pick it up. Right, yeah. Good old big Hasbro, right? Yeah. yeah it's it's really interesting that it's cuz like when I when I was growing up, you know, as I've said a million times on here, I grew up very Christian and my mom had actually played with a Ouija board as a kid. Really? And she was like, never play with a Ouija board. And she didn't even want to go into any detail on really why other than it's a portal to, you know, the spiritual realm and you never know what's going to come through. And obviously you're going to open yourself up to demonic activity. Yeah. And so she, and that's what she truly believes too. She was like, put the fear of God in me from an early age of like, do not ever play with a Ouija board. And so I just haven't to this day. I haven't touched a, a Ouija board. I mean, I have a Ouija board, but I haven't like actively tried to participate. One of these days. One of these we'll days. Bring yeah, it in maybe, here and do maybe it. we need to do it in here. Yeah. I mean, I want to because I'm just curious. I'm curious to see what will happen. But at the same time, <laughs> I already know everybody else here is like, do that outside of the office because <laughs> we don't need you guys conjuring or bringing any sort of negative presence into this space. Uh, because in my previous studio, 100% haunted. Um, we had a lot of very strange things happening, especially with the technology. I mean, we had an episode where we had an orb go across the screen, and I still can't figure out what episode that was. If anybody remembers what episode that was, where there was a like a glowing orb that was like right next to me, I believe we were covering some haunting or something like that. Um, so I personally believe in the paranormal. I believe that there are devices, there are rituals that you can do to make contact with not only spirits, but potentially negative entities to call them demons, whatever you want to call them. But it is something you got to be careful with. And I think anybody in the pagan community, the Wiccan community would say the same thing. Yeah. And I'm on the more skeptical side, so I don't, 
I don't really believe it, but I'm, I'm open to it. And I, I knew I had a lot of friends back in the day. I would joke about like late night parties be like someone pull out the Ouija board right now. Like, let's check That's it awesome. out. And people would be like, some of them would be like, please God, no, don't like keep that in the closet. We don't want to. So I don't know. I never had any friends that were, were interested in the paranormal. So that never was like something that came up. And it, I, I mean, probably because most of my friends were Christian growing up. So right, that was just right. not a game that we had, but you know, now that I'm out of, out of religion, you know, it's something that I definitely want to experiment with and we'll have to do something in the future. We'll do it at my house. If, yeah. If we'll go to your, there we go. To, Let's go to your, mine's a rental. I can <laughs> we'll peace out of there in a, a year you or always, so. You know? Always leave. Yeah. 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 Definitely can't do it at my house. <laughs> Kendall's always like, you need to be careful about what you bring home. And I'm like, trust me, I'm, I'm being careful, you know, and I'm not ac- actively doing any rituals here at least yet. <laughs> but anyways, today we're going to be diving into a bunch of very, honestly, some pretty spooky shit. But before we get into today's episode, I did want to remind everybody to uh, a few ways that you can support the show. First of all, you can support the show buying merch at MileHeartMerch.com. We still have some items left from our last collection. Get them all you can because once we're sold out of them, we are not restocking any designs moving forward. All collections are going to be limited. Right now, we are working on a cryptid collection. There you have it. I just, I think I just announced it for the first time. Next collection is going to be a cryptid inspired collection, which we're very excited about. It's really coming together uh, really nicely. I'm excited to see kind of everything. The, the sketches so far look really sick. Yeah, it's yeah. going to be, it's going to be awesome. So get uh, the designs that are out there right now while you can. Uh, I know we're running out of, of quantities there. So again, that's milehardmerch.com. But if you're not able to support us via merch, you can always support us in a very simple way. By just going to Spotify and clicking that follow button. Whether you watch the show or listen to the show on Spotify or not, it does really help us out. That's like the leading podcast platform. And lately we've been in like the top 20 of true crime uh, across the U.S. And I think we're number 12 in the U.K. right now. So thank you to all of our U.K. listeners. We're trying to uh, fit some more U.K. content um, into you know sort of our, our plans for this year. And actually in today's episode we have a couple stories out of the U.K., Uh, which I think you guys will find especially interesting. But that's a great way to support the show. Obviously, subscribing on YouTube always helps us out or subscribing on Apple Podcasts. But this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Daily Harvest. More on that later. But without further ado, let's just dive right into the history of the Ouija board. double murderer whose original conviction was overturned because jurors had used a Ouija board was convicted again today. The oracle, as you put your hand on it, would just move around. I took the Ouija board by myself up to my bedroom one night. July 1898, Baltimore native William Fold and his brother Isaac signed a contract to manufacture and sell the infamous Ouija board. My family always said, it's a game made out of plywood and plastic. Are you scared of that? The Ouija board quickly became the number one selling board game in America. New glow-in-the-dark Ouija. Go ahead. Ask another. Ask another. Come on. What do you want to know? But William Fold had one final request that was foremost in his mind. Never sell the Ouija board.
So one of the first mentions of what's known as automatic writing originated in China around 1100 CE. The method was known as the Fuji, or spirit writing. It involved a tray that guided a stick to write in sand or ashes. After the invention, spirit writing was often used to perform necromancy and communicate with the spirit world. This was later forbidden in China centuries later, during the Qing Dynasty. But the idea of the talking board lived on. One of the major reasons why the Ouija board is so popular today is because of the spiritualist movements in the U.S. that raged on in the 1800s. People's obsession with seances and paranormal interactions grew. And by the mid to late 1800s, spiritualism and American culture had fused together. After the American Civil War, which so many people died during that war, the numbers say almost a million people lost their lives. And mediums really capitalized on this because they would claim that they could make contact. Hundreds of spiritualism newspapers like Banner of Light gained popularity during this time. And people would write in every week claiming they could communicate with a dead family member. People also believed that these practices lined up with Christian principles. So they had no problems going to a seance on Saturday, speaking with their dead loved ones, and then going to church on Sunday. Which is crazy to think about because it's like such the opposite thing. If you if you were to show up at church on Sunday and be like, oh yeah, last night I was at a seance with my family. It seems like, yeah. People no, would be like, oh. Yeah, nowadays oh there would be no way, yeah. But back then it was kind of just a part of your faith. Which I don't think a lot of people realize that like it, it originates with Christianity yeah. in a way. Yeah. Even the president's wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, conducted seances in the White House after their 11-year-old son died of a fever in 1862. It really became a way to deal with death on a spiritual level. At the time, the average lifespan was less than 50 years old. Women often died in childbirth and young children died of disease, and young men died in the war. Only a few decades later, patents came flooding in for spirit boards. The exact origins of American talking boards are unknown, but some of the earliest patents date back to 1890 or 1891. The first few advertisements appeared in February of 1891 for a Pittsburgh toy and novelty shop, but talking boards had already become popular years before because people could make them at home. The basic layout included a yes and no response in the upper corners, and the letters of the alphabet covered the center. Numbers 0 through 9 are at the bottom, and the word goodbye is below that. The only other piece to the game was a planchette, which is a tear-shaped pointer device. As far as the name goes, something Ouija. It's weird that it's Ouija. It's like technically pronounced Ouija. Ouija? Yeah, mm-hmm. but but over time, we just, now we just say Ouija. So. so Ouija comes from the novelist's name Ouida. Some even claim that the board named itself during a seance. Helen Peters was a medium who had family ties with one of the earliest patent creators. Supposedly, she sat down with the board one night and asked what it should be called. And apparently, the board spelled out the word Ouija. And when she asked about what that meant, it responded, good luck. <laughs> Which is interesting because it's quite the opposite for many uh, people's experiences with the board. But many believe that the name was just a marketing choice. Many thought that Ouija sounded Egyptian, and that's how they sold it. Soon after the first patents, a man named William Fold patented another popular version on July 19, 1892, but it wasn't as popular as Ouija. William later bought them out, 
and over the years he battled with competitors. And eventually the Ouija board became a household name. Even in newspapers, they no longer mention the generic talking board like they used to. They specifically mention Ouija. It became so popular that even a writer named Pearl Curran claimed that she had used a Ouija board to channel a spirit named Patience Worth to write her novels for her. Some fun facts about the Ouija board that I didn't know. Um, it actually gets more popular during tough times. So when there's war or an economic downturn. Well, it's like a practical use at that point. It's not just like, oh, let's just, we're bored. So let's, yeah, right. let's get it out. Let's actually try to use it to our advantage by, I mean, it seems there was really this belief that you're going to be able to contact your, your loved ones that have passed or yeah and it was especially during harder times people were like well maybe i can reach out to the dead to try and help me through this time um and during the vietnam war specifically the ouija board outsold monopoly which is the first time in history anything's outsold monopoly now obviously i think the best-selling games are technically like chess and checkers and stuff but no one it's hasbro owns right those certain ones so like an actual patented game like that first time ever that it knocked out monopoly is number one that's was wild i wonder what more. the sales are today i'm not sure i think it's still pretty far up there i'm sure it is i think too with the paranormal becoming more and more popular i mean there's so much content surrounding the paranormal and mentions of of the ouija board that i'm sure many of you out there which you know let us know if you're listening if you have one at home i feel like most people have one at their house yeah and they're really not that expensive because no. I, I looked up buying one before yeah. this episode. I was like, they were like 20, 25 bucks or something. Yeah. And like I said at the beginning, I mean, you can just go down to Target and go to the board game section. And they yeah. usually have it in stock. So yeah. you can contact the paranormal through Target. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty interesting. I mean, it's only a game though, right? Right. It's, right. It's not That's a real instrument. Another fun fact is uh, they've been condemned by several religions. Some not super explicitly but supposedly uh pope Pius x he didn't say ouija board specifically but he did warn against parlor games that dabbled in the occult um and even some religious websites like if you look up on catholicanswers.com it said the ouija board is far from harmless as it is a form of divination the fact of the matter is the ouija board really does work the only spirits that will be contacted through it are evil ones so I don't know. Some people think it's not just a game, you know? And then, uh, the big surge in popularity was after the movie, the exorcist came out in 1973. Cause, uh, if you've ever seen it, the little girl Reagan uses it pretty early on in the movie right. and the, the planchette's kind of shifting on its own. Yeah. And so yeah. that's, well, there's been this like correlation between the Ouija board and possession yeah um that's been around for a long long time and so i think that's where and and i wonder how much of like movies and media you know kind of making that tie a real thing yeah that religious organizations have like seen that or you know like oh well that could happen in real life so therefore we need to just say no don't use it yeah Um, especially because the exorcist was you know kind of somewhat based on a true story yeah so yeah. even we've like covered if, it here on lights out yeah, yeah you consider that you know it's like yeah maybe it's opening up some portal you know it's it's hard though because it's like whatever this portal is is you know we can't see it with the naked eyes so it's like how do you know for sure that we're opening up a portal or not right but it's like the, i guess it's i mean whenever you're talking about religious beliefs you know we're all we all 
you know, anybody that has some sort of spiritual beliefs believes that there is realms that we cannot see with the with the naked eye and that are all around us. And so and and some and we'll get into psychology of it later, but it's like if you, you know, are going into a Ouija board session with the intentions of of contacting someone who's passed or um, you know, contacting the spiritual world in any way, you know, are you actually are you actually doing something? And that's where, you know, it's interesting that there's like this rejection of divination. You know, they like to say divination. I mean, because yeah. it was funny, I, I was looking up a focus on the family, which was what um, it's a huge Christian organization out of Colorado Springs. And my my parents would run music, movies and everything through this focus on the family. It's like uh, it's a very conservative um, take on all mainstream media. And so, you know, they would you know, I'd be like, I want to go see this movie at the theaters and they would look it up on there and be like, absolutely not. Oh, they would flag. It would things. give you like the Christian breakdown of it and be like, you do not, do not let your children go watch this because it has these themes of this. It gotcha. has divination. Yeah. I mean, Harry Potter was a no-no for me for a long time right. because yeah. of witchcraft because they were like, this has witchcraft. This will promote your child to be interested in the occult and all this stuff. And so um, it's interesting because it's like, my point being is that divination you know, is this whole world of, of the unseen and the occult is just hidden knowledge. That's what the occult means. But to a lot of people who don't understand the occult, they believe that it's the occult only equals evil, but in actuality, it's just, it, it doesn't jive with the religion, you know, it, cause it's saying there's things that are beyond the religious scope of, you know, the Bible or whatever book you may, you may believe and so, therefore, it is evil when in actuality, there's a lot of divination within the Bible itself. Yeah. You yeah. know, there's a lot of like just it's it's almost like they were flagging kind of they use buzzwords to flag things in media like this is divination. This is witchcraft. This is occult and then, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And then it was they just nixed all of that. Even growing up Catholic, I had a girl who was um, her mom. We were on a, a school trip to like New York or something. And the mom was like if we watch Harry Potter taking my daughter off this bus yeah, and stuff. Yeah, people were fired up about it. Yeah. For the longest time, it took me a long time to convince my parents that, well, it's no different than Lord of the Rings here. Right. There's yeah. magic in Lord of the Rings. I yeah. mean, there's divination there as well. So it's like, there's really no difference. And I, I think it's just, I mean, it was all overblown anyway, but sorry, go on, go on. I'm, I'm okay. getting way off track here. Yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, the last fun fact that I have is Bill Wilson, the co-founder of AA Alcoholics Anonymous. I, he was into a lot of stuff, um, but supposedly he used a Ouija board to contact the dead to help him form the 12 step program that we have today in AA. Wow. Isn't that crazy? I did not know that. Yeah. I wonder what, what steps he got. Yeah. Yeah. Which ones? Cause maybe we can take those off or consider something else. I don't know. He was also, I think he was into hallucinogenic drugs and he was into a lot of kind of far out there stuff, but I don't know. AA has helped a lot of people. So maybe I it's, guess it's a good thing that, yeah, he did that maybe it's not about the journey, but the end goal here. Yeah. Well, I know a lot of musicians, like I was just, I was just reading about David Bowie and how he dabbled in black magic and some different, you know, occult practices 
um, you know, to find inspiration for music and things like that. And just artistry in general, I think a lot of people have, you know, tried to reach out to the other side for messages or, you know, trying to figure out a path forward in their own life. And so, you know, when this board comes along and it's potentially has a, has this ability to connect you there, I mean, it would make sense that people would want to give it a try and see if it's something more than just, you know, this game as it's marketed. I don't know. It's just, it's so interesting to me that it's marketed as a game, but then there is this whole spiritual significance to it. And because I'm like, is there, I'm trying to think of any other examples of something like that that exists in the world. I think the thing that it, it it's, I guess it is a game and it isn't a game because like we were talking earlier, it's, it's patented. So it's like, it's sold by a company in a nice little box. So that's maybe what makes us think that it's just strictly a game. But we were also saying like it originated not as a game and you can even play it just with, you know, a glass and, and a piece of paper so, which makes you think that it's not so much about the physical components, you know, it's not like you have to use Hasbro's specific components. Yeah. You can recreate this in any way that you want. Yeah. And if you go into it with the intention of making contact, there's always that possibility depending on what you believe. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you don't believe that that's you, you can, you know, this, there's this other side that of the unseen then I guess it's, you know, comes down to the psychology of it, which, which will be really interesting to dive into. So getting back to the Ouija board though, today the board has remained pretty much the same as it has been for many, many years. And people do still use it to try and communicate with the dead. Over the years, strange events, crimes, and tragedies have been connected to the Ouija boards. And some have even claimed that their Ouija boards have forced them to do terrible things. So one of the first victims of a Ouija board is believed to have been the man who brought the brand into the spotlight, Mr. William Fold. William had bought out the Kenner Novelty Company in 1892, which had patented the Ouija board a few years earlier. He ended up making millions from the toy and ran the company for three and a half decades. He promoted the talking board like crazy until it became an international hit. And over the years, its popularity kept growing. The company had eventually expanded across the country and they had to build more factories to keep up with the demand. According to a 1919 Baltimore Sun story, one night William channeled paranormal energy through his own personal Ouija board. And apparently the spirit he contacted told him it would be a good idea to build a new factory on Harford Avenue in Baltimore. Years later on February 24th, 1927, William visited this factory. It was three stories tall and he went up onto the roof to supervise the installation of a new flagpole. As he stood on the roof though, he got tired. So he leaned up against an iron safety railing at the edge of the roof. Moments later, the workers heard a loud snap and they looked over to see where William had once stood. The railing had actually given way and William fell to the ground three stories below. When the ambulance got there, the paramedics found William on the cement in a pool of his own blood. What's crazy is that he was still alive, but a fractured rib had pierced his heart. Obviously, this is a very difficult injury to survive, and William later died at the hospital. He was only 51 years old. Many believe that a spirit had contacted him through the Ouija board years before and told him to build that three-story factory just so something could force him off the roof and send him to his death. 
His children ended up taking over the company until it was sold to Parker Brothers in 1966, which later became a brand of Hasbro in 1991, one of the biggest board game companies in history. Although William's death might have just been a coincidence, many believe crimes and murders have been specifically caused by supernatural interactions that happen through the Ouija boards. So while most people use these boards for fun or a way to communicate with late relatives, some believe that paranormal entities beyond the veil want to cause harm or inflict death on people. In one of the most famous cases, two Native American women blamed a Ouija board for their actions. In the fall of 1929, two spiritual Seneca women sat down for a session with their Ouija board. A brief history of the Seneca people. Um, They're also known as the people of the Great Hill, and they are an Iroquoian linguistic group. They lived in what is now western New York State and eastern Ohio. They were once the largest of the six Iroquois Confederacy nations. So the men hunted in the fall and returned to their homes in midwinter. The women often grew corn and other vegetables. Um, Along with their physical survival, though, their culture and their beliefs were the core of their spiritual survival. So the Seneca were allied with the British during the American Revolution. Many of them were killed and their villages were destroyed during this time. Much of their land was lost and later surrendered. Today there are roughly 16,000 people of the Seneca descent that still exist. But yeah, a lot of their core beliefs and fundamentals come from uh, their spiritual access to the world. I mean, Native Americans are very spiritual people and I've... I really enjoy learning about Native American culture because I think, and th- this was this was something that I was going to bring up to you earlier is like, what do you make of a lot of early civilizations, especially when talking about indigenous peoples who have been here on the planet far before any of us have, and just how spiritual they are and in tune they are with, you know, these unseen realms. Like, what do you make of that? Is that just like because they they you know. It's, they don't know anything else or like, is there something more to it? I mean, I'm open to anyone's spirituality. I think we can all learn a lot from people's different beliefs and how they understand the world. Even if you're more of a scientific minded person, I think there's a lot to be gained through spiritual aspects, religious aspects. And like you said, they date back a long time yeah, so it's yeah. hard to ignore that uh, at least as a part of history it seems pretty crucial i i tend to believe that they you know science uh, you know we've obviously discovered these natural laws of the universe and it's helped us make sense of a lot of things but there is so many things that science cannot explain and it seems like almost every day we continue to make new discoveries that science you know these laws don't know fit in that you just don't explain for example the ufo phenomenon is is a huge one and you know that's an unexplainable thing right now we're trying we're attempting to study it and and things like that but there's a lot of aspects to it that just don't make any sense i mean the propulsion of of these craft make absolutely no sense um in in the the scientific sense so i i'm a big believer of you know science is great and i think science is absolutely needed and it's it's needed to make sense of of the natural world but i think there are things that science just hasn't caught up with yet or there's things that will completely turn a lot of scientific things on its head and even some of these natural laws that 
the ancient cultures really understood. And they also did understand science as well, astronomy and, and a lot of different scientific, you know, subjects. So there was science infused within their, their cultures, but there's also this deep connection with spirit that they were so in tune with. And I think there's a reason why they successfully survived for so many years and the intimate knowledge that they have of the universe and the cosmos. And I'm, I'm specifically thinking of the aboriginals. I mean, they're, I believe they're one of the oldest cultures on the face of the planet that still still exists. And, you know, they, they have all sorts of different stories about connections with star people and things like that. People coming from the cosmos, uh, uh, to them. And so I, I'm a big, big fan of, of native American culture. Cause I think they were and are still very much in tune with something that many of us just have no connection to. Yeah. And it's something that many of us yearn for, but you know, can't find it. And, you know, I think there's something more to, you know, their beliefs and their culture that honestly the rest of the world needs, you know? Yeah. Their sheer respect for the natural world is something that we've lost, especially, I mean, you could even make the argument for the scientific community that has yeah, lost yeah, sight exactly. of that because we've continuously destroyed the world and the nature surrounding us, you know, through technology. So I think they have a, definitely have a deeper connection to nature which we've lost yeah and just spirit is is kind of what you would call it i mean there's a lot of scientists that are atheists or don't believe any sort of spiritual aspect to life and i think i think you have to be open to that this idea that there is this spiritual world that exists that you may not be able to see or measure or use the scientific method to sort of make sense of but yeah. I think you have to remain open to it as a scientist to re to really understand everything as a whole because I think there is a, a connection, a deeper connection there across all sciences. They all interconnect. And what is that connection? So I'm I'm getting very too deep here. <laughs> I did not smoke before this episode, even though it might seem like it, but so anyways, I'm I'm apologizing in advance for getting so off topic today. I feel like I've been going down in my mind all these deep rabbit holes so apologies i'm a new dad for those that don't know and my daughter got me up very very early this morning so back we'll, to the we'll blame it on holly we'll blame yeah. it yeah we'll blame it on her but getting back to the two women the two seneca women that we were talking about previously so they were from the cataragus reservation in new york state near buffalo one woman named nancy bowen was a 66-year-old tribal healer and herbalist. The other was a 36-year-old woman named Lila Jimerson, and she was a reservation school teacher. So Nancy had recently lost her husband, Sassafras Charlie, who was another tribal healer, and he had died under strange circumstances. So the two women decided to pull out their Ouija board and try to contact him. Supposedly during the session, the spirit of Nancy's dead husband contacted them the spirit claimed he had been murdered by a woman named Clotilda. The spirit even gave them a physical description of his killer and the address where she lived. It was a house on Riley Street in Buffalo City. And Lila recognized the name. She told Nancy that Clotilda was the wife of a gifted sculptor from Paris named Henri Marchand. And he lived on the same reservation as them while studying the culture of the Native Americans who lived there. Henri was famous for his incredibly detailed dioramas. 
He built three-dimensional miniature scenes from nature or history, and he crafted them from several different materials and wax figures arranged inside a glass case. He originally began his work at the New York State Museum and then went on to work on the Iroquois dioramas before heading to Buffalo in 1925 with his family. Here he worked with his sons, Paul and George, to construct dioramas for the Buffalo Museum of Science in 1929. Today, most of his work is no longer on display, but you can find some of the last remaining pieces in the museum's Hall of Wildflowers. While he worked with the Senecas, he studied flora and fauna on their reservation. He occasionally stayed in a nearby cottage close to the reservation with his wife, Clotilda. Meanwhile, she would go out and gather wild mushrooms and sketch the countryside in her notebooks. When Lila told Nancy about the couple, she mentioned that she had known Henri for nearly 10 years. Not only that, she had worked on his model for some time. A few days after the seance, Nancy began receiving mysterious letters from someone calling herself Mrs. Dooley. This woman claimed she knew secrets involving Sassafras Charlie, his death, and what was really going on. One of the letters read, I know something secret. I decided that I better tell you and help you out. What I can... This is what I know Charlie Bowen is killed by a witch in the city of Buffalo. It was from a French woman. She killed Charlie because he gave good medicine to sell in the city. Her witchcraft didn't work so good, so she decided to kill him. She killed many, many that way, Indians and white. Nancy ended up taking these letters very seriously, and she was convinced that Clotilda had murdered her husband. The letters claim that Clotilda was a witch based on the fact that she collected mushrooms. Which doesn't make a whole lot of sense because collecting wild mushrooms was completely normal practice for Europeans back in France. But to the Native Americans, this was a strange behavior. Nancy even called mushrooms strange, hellish vegetables. So Nancy claimed she was fully convinced that her dead husband's spirit had identified his killer through the Ouija board. And from the letters, she also believed this French woman was a witch that needed to be stopped at all costs. So she went out and bought a hammer and a batch of chloroform before heading to Clotilda's house in Buffalo. On March 7, 1930, the doorbell rang. And when Clotilda answered her front door, she saw a middle-aged Native American woman that she had never seen before. Nancy stood on the front porch, pointed her finger at Clotilda, and accused her of being a witch. Then she dragged the woman back inside her home where she beat her to death with the metal hammer. Before leaving, she made sure to pour chloroform onto a piece of paper and shove it halfway down Clotilda's throat to make sure that she would die. Later that day, 12-year-old Henri Jr. came home from school to find his poor mother lying dead on the first floor landing. He dropped his things and ran as fast as he could to the nearby Buffalo Museum of Science where he knew his father would be. When he told him what happened, Henri called the police. At first, the family thought that she had fallen down the stairs and died from her wounds, but the medical examiner found bloody gashes on her body, signs of defense, and the chloroform-soaked paper that had been jammed down her throat. When police asked neighbors if they had seen anything, several of them claimed that two Native American women had been hanging around the area before the attack, and one was older than the other. Some of the neighbors thought it looked like they had been casing the house. As investigators dug into the crime, they discovered that Henri had been having an affair with none other than Lila Jimerson. 
Henri first denied it, but then confessed when police found a slew of love letters that he had hidden in his house. Later, he testified that it was a professional necessity to make love to his Native American models because it was the only way that they would feel comfortable posing nude for him. And he said it was the only way he could accurately depict their physical characteristics. Lila was later brought in as a suspect. There, she told police about Nancy's involvement with the crime, so they arrested her as well. Police found Nancy with bloody strips of clothing and the frames of Clotilda's glasses that she had stolen from her corpse. Authorities then used this as an excuse to invade the reservation and ransack people's homes. They conducted illegal searches on anyone and any place they wanted to. Lila later admitted that she had called Henri on the day of the murder and asked to go for a ride in his car. This was a way to get him out of the house so Nancy could kill his wife. As the case came together, the story of the Ouija board murder became a media sensation. The news referred to Nancy and Lila using ethnic slurs for Native American women, and they also called Nancy the Hex Woman. And the media also played into the black magic and witch narrative as much as they could. The news reports barely talked about the actual case, and the stories became an attack against the Iroquois people and their culture. But Nancy's confession only fueled the flames. Once the trial finally began, Nancy claimed that she had been compelled by supernatural forces through the Ouija board to kill Clotilda, or as she called her, the White Witch. At first, she tried to use hexes and black magic to kill her, and when that failed, she believed she had to do it herself. So she bought a hammer and chloroform and carried out the murder. Henri Marchand also testified during the trial and he admitted that he had many affairs with Native American women. He claimed that Clotilda had not only known about the affairs, but consented to them. How convenient for him. As for Lila, her lawyer explained that it was a crime of passion. She had been jealous of Clotilda and wanted Henri to herself, so she helped Nancy get rid of her. Meanwhile, Nancy's lawyer made the defense that she was only a pawn in Lila's game, and Lila had used Nancy. She knew she was obsessed with witchcraft, so Lila convinced Nancy that Clotilda was an evil witch that needed to die. The trial came to a halt when Lila collapsed in the middle of the courtroom. When she was rushed to a doctor, they discovered that Lila had suffered from a serious respiratory condition related to tuberculosis. So tuberculosis is a potentially serious infectious disease that mostly affects the lungs. It's spread through bacteria from person to person. Symptoms include coughing up blood and mucus, and it's a cough that can last for three or more weeks. Um, there's also chest pain, intense night sweats, and trouble breathing. It can also sometimes affect your kidney, spine, and brain. So it's pretty serious. Um, it's been around for thousands of years, but it became a serious problem in the UK in the early 1900s. Luckily, a vaccine was first used on humans in 1921, about a decade before these murders had occurred. But unfortunately, the vaccine hadn't gotten a widespread acceptance until after World War II. So in the 1930s, when this was taking place, um, they didn't really have access to the vaccines. So luckily, they rushed Lila to the hospital when she collapsed in the courtroom. Yeah, it's one of those diseases that was very difficult to live through. Yeah. I mean, it attacks your whole body, it seems like. Yeah. So while in her hospital bed, she confessed to second-degree murder, but later retracted the confession. The judge then declared a mistrial because of Lila's poor health. And then a second trial began about a year later in March 1931. 
During this trial, Lila's defense claimed she was not responsible for the murder in any way. Her lawyers even claimed that Henri had tried to get several other Native American women to agree to kill his wife. They said that he was, quote unquote, tired of her. Coincidentally, Henri had already moved to Albany and remarried another woman, his 18-year-old niece. That says a lot about Henri. By the end of the second trial, Lila was acquitted. Henri, crazy enough, was never charged with a crime, which he should have absolutely been charged with a crime. Nancy was found guilty of manslaughter, but was given a sentence of time served since she had already been in jail for several years at that point. When looking back on this case decades later, there's obviously lots of manipulation and racism. It was once known as the scandal of the century, as it had it all, murder, witchcraft, adultery, and a clash of cultures. Now, people have pointed toward Henri as a potential mastermind. Again, he had a great understanding of the Seneca's belief system, and he knew how to manipulate them. Some believe the letters that came from the mysterious Mrs. Dooley might have been created by Henri under a pen name. Since he had such a good understanding of Nancy's superstitions, he knew how to manipulate her beliefs, just like he manipulated the Seneca models into sleeping with him. So he might have convinced Nancy to put an end to his wife, the White Witch in Buffalo, that had been supposedly killing fellow Native Americans. And since she believed she had come in contact with the spirit of her dead husband through the Ouija board, Henri only had to push her a little bit further. Nancy Bowen's name was later hung up in lights above Buffalo's History Museum in 2022 as a reminder of the racism and injustices against the Seneca people. The case of Nancy Bowen has probably been the most controversial case involving a Ouija board. But many others through the years have accused the talking board for their heinous crimes or the crimes of their future family members. In the case of Gary Gilmore, his mother might have accidentally let in a demonic presence that had latched on to her bloodline when she was only a child. Gary, on the other hand, was born on December 4th, 1940, in McCamey, Texas. He was the second of four sons. His father was a petty con man named Frank Gilmore Sr., and his mother's name was Bessie. Gary had a pretty troubled childhood. His family moved around a lot while his father committed crimes across the country. Frank was prone to violence, especially when he drank which was often. By the time Gary was 10, he and his family had made it to Portland, Oregon, and early on he began showing signs of trouble. He followed in his father's footsteps and began robbing stores. He also picked up his father's tendency toward explosive violence. When he was in his teens, he was arrested for Grand Theft Auto and spent time in the McLaren Reform School for Boys. And by the time he was an adult, he had been sentenced to the Oregon State Correctional Institution his crimes had escalated from robbery to assault, and most of his adult life was spent in and out of prison. If he wasn't assaulting and robbing people outside, he was writing poetry and creating artwork in prison. He also became known for how intelligent and devoted he was. After prison staff saw his talent, they released him in 1972, under the condition that he attended art classes at a community college. Meanwhile, he committed another robbery and found himself back in prison with a nine-year sentence. While serving time in a maximum security prison in Illinois, he began sending letters to his cousin, Brendan Nicole. And through these letters, Gary convinced Brenda that he deserved a second chance. After serving four years, he was conditionally released again and went to live with Brenda in Provo, Utah. She promised to help him find work and give him the support he needed. 
But before long, Gary fell back into his old habits and his life began to spiral out of control. While living in Provo, he started a relationship with a 19-year-old named Nicole Baker Barrett. But she left him a few months later when she noticed his violent outbursts worsened. On July 19, 1976, Gary headed out to Orem, Utah, where he robbed a gas station attendant named Max Jensen. Max complied with every demand since Gary held him at gunpoint. But even though he listened to everything Gary told him to do, it wasn't enough to spare his life. Unprovoked, Gary tilted the gun up to Max's head, and two shots rang out. Max died instantly before falling to the ground, and Gary fled the scene. Now that he had a taste for blood, he was ready for more. After staying under the radar for a night, Gary headed to a Provo hotel where he robbed the manager, Ben Bushnell. But the money wasn't all he wanted. Even though Ben complied with every order, just like Max did, Gary couldn't ignore the intense urge to kill again, so he aimed his gun at the manager and squeezed the trigger several times. Ben died from the gunshot wounds soon after, and Gary fled the scene. Ben's wife heard the gunshots and ran to the front door where she spotted Gary leaving the scene with the cash box in his hands. Gary then tried to get rid of his weapon, but as he threw it away, he accidentally shot himself in the hand. He tried to take care of the wound without going to the hospital, but later he had to pick up his truck from a local mechanic. It had broken down and he needed to skip town. While talking with the mechanic, the man noticed Gary's gunshot wound bleeding from his hand. The mechanic had also heard the news of the nearby attack on the hotel manager, so the mechanic called the police. Gary then tried to call his cousin Brenda to see if she could help him with his wound. She thought he had changed, but clearly he hadn't, so she also notified the police. Gary hopped into his truck and quickly fled town, realizing that the police were probably looking for him. But he was pulled over and arrested just before he could get out of Provo. When his family heard what happened, Gary's mother, Bessie, recalled a memory from her childhood. She had once tried to communicate with spirits through the use of a Ouija board. As the planchette moved across the letters, something responded, but it wasn't a spirit. The paranormal presence claimed it was a demon, and with Bessie's help, it was now unleashed onto the world. The demon then promised her it would possess her entire family for a generation. So if you got our last episode, we did cover uh, blood demons as a concept, um, which we thought maybe was a part of the Moffat family. Um, it's basically demons that can follow a bloodline for generations uh, without, sometimes without the family members realizing it. And they also get an obsession with blood and blood sacrifices. So whoever they possess, they, they also get those deep desires for blood. So maybe that was happening here. Yeah. As decades passed, Bessie finally made the connection, and she believed this demon had possessed her son Gary and caused him to murder two people in cold blood. Once in custody, Gary instantly admitted to killing Max Jensen and Ben Bushnell, but due to lack of evidence, he was only charged for the murder of Ben. His case went to trial on October 5th, 1976, and only lasted two days. The jury immediately found him guilty of first-degree murder, and the judge sentenced him to death. Gary was given two options, death by hanging or firing squad. Gary chose to be shot to death by firing squad, and his execution was scheduled for the following month. His attorneys urged him to appeal his case, but Gary fired them right after they mentioned the appeal, as he wanted to die, and he didn't want to delay his death. But this plan backfired. Since he didn't appeal his case, the ACLU, 
and the NAACP both caught wind of his case. Even though Gary wanted to die, both groups tried to stop his execution, along with all executions across the country. But against his wishes, the ACLU intervened and blocked the execution on three occasions. Their main objective, it would open the floodgates for executions nationwide. It would lead to more insanity around the the whole issue of the death penalty. Uh, and, And the implementation of the death penalty is indeed an insane issue. But Gilmore wanted the ACLU to stay out of it. The governor twice issued stays of execution. He wanted the Board of Pardons to decide if death was appropriate in Gilmore's case. During a Board of Pardons hearing in November of 1976, Gilmore made it quite clear. It seems that uh, the people, especially the people of Utah, they want the uh, death penalty, but they don't want executions. And when it became a reality, they might have to carry one out. Well, I started backing off on it. Well, I took them literal and serious when they sentenced me to death. The stays of execution angered Gilmore. In November, he attempted suicide, recovered, but tried again the next month. His execution was now set for January 17, 1977. National and international media converged at the Utah State Prison. Protesters held vigils. The ACLU made one last attempt to save his life, but it was denied 30 minutes before his execution. After the failed suicide attempts, he went on a hunger strike when he didn't eat. His mother, Bessie, felt guilty since she believed she had unleashed a demon on her family after using the Ouija board when she was a child. On his behalf, she tried to fight the death sentence and get him to eat again. But he published a public letter in the press and asked her to stop. He didn't want help. He only wanted to die. So on January 17, 1977, about three months after his trial... Gary was executed by a volunteer firing squad in the Utah State Prison of Draper. So more quote-unquote advanced countries have tried to implement more humane practices of execution, and it's most common is you get lethal injection. Um, Which I've heard is not always effective. Yeah, sometimes it has... Honestly, not humane at all. Yeah, (laughs) sometimes it's failed and people suffer greatly, and sometimes they don't even die. Um, so even then you could point out that it's not always humane in that case, but luckily, you know, we don't have anything like beheadings or crucifixions any longer. Uh, but wouldn't it like a guillotine be like pretty, uh, effective? I think it's very effective. The reason we don't do it is, uh, more the trauma for the executioner rather than, you know, everybody who who's watching. Exactly. It's, yeah, a, pretty, it's a pretty horrific scene. And, yeah. Um, I mean, beheading. it's, it's definitely the most clean way to well not actual clean but just to get it over with it's definitely one um eight states can still use electrocution Mm. seven can still use lethal gas three can still use hanging and four can still use death by firing squad and utah was one of them even though across the board lethal injection is uh the primary method i think it's more the prisoner has to request to get a something else yeah interesting but it's it's mostly just lethal injection yeah the electric chairs that's another one that i think would you'd think would be pretty traumatizing to witness yeah right? right and even what is it uh the movie green mile where he doesn't wet the sponge on the mm. head and things like that mm-hmm. yeah, pretty brutal so as for death by firing squad some countries like china only use one shooter where they shoot the inmate in the back of the head but that's more rare with the case of a firing squad, some inmates think death will be pretty quick, and that's why they want to choose it. 
especially compared to garroting, which is no longer a thing. Garroting is where you choke to death with a chain wire cloth, which Utah actually used to do in recent history. I'm not sure when they finally outlawed it. Also, a strange fact that I came across, as far as the federal government deeming certain executions unconstitutional, they haven't. It's up to the states. So pretty much everything as far as the federal law goes, yeah, yeah, it's like you can kill anyone any way you want. I was going to say, I mean, the garroting is like a torture method. Yeah, right? That's pretty brutal. So, yeah, I guess it is that in, yeah, is that impeding on your rights to be tortured by the state? Right. Versus like a ethical execution, you know, or a humane one. Yeah. So a lot of inmates used to think that firing squads was the way to go. Sometimes you get shot at by 12 men. Uh, Yeah. It'd be like in a a line. Yep. And you'd be like against a wall or something like strapped down. Yep. Or in a chair. I think in this case it was five shooters. Uh, But then one shooter is always given a blank round. And the reason they do that is so that one shooter always has the benefit of the doubt that maybe they had the blank round and actually didn't shoot. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So they don't know. Yeah. So all the shooters are handed a gun, a loaded gun. One One of them has a blank blank in it. Interesting. Some people say they can tell, though, which one has the blank because the recoil is a little different. Yeah, I was going to say, if there's no projectile going out of it, I bet you can tell. Yeah. If you're well-versed with guns, at least. Exactly. And so that's why also why firing squad was deemed as a little bit more ethical because the shooters also have interesting. I never, I never thought about the executioner like looking out for that guy. Right. Yeah. I mean, that must be kind of traumatic to have to yeah pull the trigger on it. Right. Yeah. So it's like, if you go back to, you know, back in time, there was like, that was one guy's job was the executioner. Most people die in firing squads. Uh, It's very rare that anyone survives. But in one case, one guy actually survived. It was he was a uh, Mexican revolutionary called El Fusilado. He took nine bullets after being sentenced to death in 1915, but it didn't kill him. He even received a coup de gras, which is you know where someone just goes up to you point blank execution style and shoots you again, usually in the head. Which he did get shot point blank in the head after already being shot multiple times. Supposedly he woke up the next day, crawled three blocks to the closest church. They took him in, gave him surgery, tried to remove as many bullets as they could. He went to live on a full life of 61 more years after that. That's crazy. He was permanently scarred and disfigured. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. After having all those bolts removed. Yeah. And he even, he lived long enough. He was on uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not, actually. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so as, as brutal as death by firing squad can be, some prisoners still have the option in a few states. Um, and in Gary's case, there were five shooters and one had a blank. Uh, and they're usually told to aim at the heart. Interesting. I mean, it makes sense. You'd want to like put all the rounds in one area where hopefully one of them. Yeah. The most critical, right. Um, you know, hits something that's going to cause him to die. Gilmore was taken to a cinder block warehouse. He wanted to stand and see it, but they strapped him to a chair. Over two dozen witnesses and relatives were there. 
The firing squad was never seen, hidden inside a canvas tent. They fired through narrow slits. When it was time, the warden asked Gary Gilmore if he had any final words. Gilmore said, let's do it. At that point, two guards placed a hood over his head, and then the warden gave the signal. The bullets pierced the white target pinned over his heart on his black t-shirt, spattering blood around the chair. The doctor says the man's body functions lasted two more minutes, but he doesn't know if he felt any pain. He always said constantly that he looked forward to the time when he could have quiet, when he could meditate. And today, Gary Gilmore has quiet. He has quiet through eternity. So Gary Gilmore became the first man to be executed in the United States in 10 years and the first to be executed after the Supreme Court reinstated the death penalty the year before. Gary's story actually later became the focus of Norman Mailer's Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Executioner's Song, in 1979. And then later it was made into a movie starring Tommy Lee Jones, which is actually on YouTube if you're interested in watching it. But Bessie believed that she had summoned a blood demon through her Ouija board, and that demon had possessed her family bloodline. Many people like Bessie believe that a Ouija board holds some sort of influence beyond her understanding. Even though Gary paid the price for the crimes he admitted to, his mother believed he wouldn't have turned out the way he did if she hadn't had used that Ouija board all those years ago. So the next Ouija board case we're going to cover comes out of Europe, and this does involve animal cruelty, just a heads up. But a single Ouija board made an entire family go mad. One thing after the next left the Carroll family in ruins. In 2014, a 51-year-old man named Paul Carroll and his 60-year-old wife Margaret began a seance with a Ouija board. They set up the board inside their home on 1st Street at Bradley Bungalows, Ludgate Village, England. They were trying to summon the dead on the night of Christmas Eve so that they could speak with them. But during this seance... Paul believed that he had accidentally summoned an evil spirit that entered the family dog, Molly. Molly was a Bedlington Terrier. These dogs are known as good housemates, alert watchdogs, and friendly companions. They have a curly coat of white with floppy ears. And they're known to be a loyal breed that's perfect for an active family. But after Paul had used the Ouija board at Christmas Eve, he no longer thought this was the perfect family dog. Apparently, Paul had severe learning difficulties and mental health problems, and as the days passed, his suspicions of his dog grew, until eventually he couldn't take it anymore. So he lured poor Molly into the bathroom, filled the tub, and held her underneath the water until she drowned. He then took her body and tried to throw it in a ditch near the Hat and Feathers pub near Mottomsley, but the ditch was too shallow, and he thought someone would easily spot the dog. So he dragged the body out of the ditch and tried to dig out the microchip so the dog couldn't be identified. After being unable to find the chip, he ended up cutting up Molly into several pieces and then shoved them into the drain at the back of his property. Soon after, a drainage company was called when it began to back up and overflow. The company workers found the animal remains stuck not far down the drain. Paul had never been convicted of a crime or had any past encounters with the law. Police ended up arresting him at his home, but he was granted bail until February 24, 2014. Paul later admitted to the court that he had caused the dog unnecessary suffering, 
and he was sentenced to 18 weeks in jail and was suspended for 12 months with supervision. He was also ordered to pay 165 pounds and was banned from keeping animals for 10 years. But this wasn't the end of the Carroll family's brush of terror with the Ouija board. Just a few weeks later, Paul's wife Margaret and her 37-year-old daughter, Katrina Livingstone, were using the board on the night of January 30th, 2015. They were trying to contact the dead spirit of their dead dog, Molly. But while the planchette moved across the letters, something told them that they would die soon. Within moments, both women set the entire house on fire, attempting to kill themselves. But when police arrived at the scene in the early morning hours of January 31st, they found the two women alive in the backyard with burn wounds across their bodies. After paramedics arrived, a small explosion shook the house and flames burst through the windows. The blast injured several firefighters and damaged the next door house. The neighbors were later forced to leave their home from the damage to the walls and structure. Both women later pled guilty to arson and reckless endangerment. Margaret later admitted that she had been in and out of psychiatric care during her mid-twenties. She was also a self-proclaimed black witch and believed she could see and contact the spirit world. As for Katrina, her lawyers explained that she had a troubled upbringing that left her extremely isolated as a child. Her only communication was with her family. Even her own two children had been taken from her by social care workers when they were young. Her last bit of peace and comfort was the family dog Molly. But after her stepfather Paul brutally killed the dog, Katrina had no one left but her mother. So when the Ouija board claimed that they would both die soon, she was overwhelmed with despair, and all she wanted to do was burn down the house and kill herself. Both her and her mother had changed their minds at the last second and ran out of the house. Both of them ended up being sentenced to four years in prison. The house was so damaged that it had to be torn down. As for the Ouija board that had caused the family so many problems, it had been destroyed in the house during the fire. So this leads us to our last Ouija board case for today. Sometimes the Ouija board determines fate, but not in the way you might think. In some cases, people have tried communicating with the dead so that they could determine other people's fate. In 1994, an English insurance broker named Stephen Young was found guilty of the gruesome double murder of 45-year-old Harry Fuller and 27-year-old Nicola Fuller. The year before the trial, the newlyweds were found brutally shot to death in their cottage. Nicola had been shot four times, and Harry was shot once in the back at close range. The jurors had to listen to the phone call that Nicola had made to police right after she had been shot three times, where she survived and was able to crawl to the bedroom phone. Most of the call was silent. Rustling noises could be heard as Nicola was dying on the bedroom floor. Then one single shot from a pistol rang out and the killer hung up the phone. One of the jurors wrote a letter to the judge saying that they couldn't go on with the trial because the evidence was too upsetting. And when the sentence finally came down, everyone believed justice had been served. The trial had gone on for five weeks and all of the evidence pointed towards Stephen Young as a murderer. His voice had been recorded on a phone call with Harry. As Harry was a car salesman and for whatever reason he had been recording all of his phone calls. Stephen's voice was later identified by several people when the voice clip was broadcasted on TV. He later admitted to being at the crime scene at the time of the crime, and he also owned an illegal firearm that matched the caliber bullets from the scene. But one month after his prison sentencing, a news headline broke open the case again. The headline read, 
murder jury's Ouija board verdict, Boo's dirty jokes, and then the Ouija board. Supposedly, the youngest member of the jury, a 24-year-old named Adrian, said that he and four other jurors consulted a Ouija board during the trial. He admitted everything in a letter that he sent to the Crown Court. During the trial, all of the jurors had stayed overnight at Brighton's old ship hotel. During dinner, they had a few drinks, and a few of them began talking about seances. After the 11 p.m. curfew, most of the jurors went to bed, but while the others slept, Adrian and a few others got drunk and then sat around a Ouija board on the hotel floor. They had made the Ouija board out of paper and a hotel room wine glass. Each placed their fingers on the glass and asked for a spirit to guide them. The spirit then identified themselves as Harry Fuller, the murder victim. When they asked the board, who killed you? It spelled out, Stephen Young done it. Then they asked how and the board responded, shot. The glass then shifted across the makeshift board spelling out, vote guilty tomorrow. And by the end of the seance, some of the jurors were crying. Each of them returned to their rooms and agreed to never tell anyone what they had done. Once the news broke, the UK Court of Appeals put an end to the double murder conviction. Well, we decided that uh, after the trial we needed to get away. The holiday was to, to get ourselves back together and, and to sort of sort ourselves out where we were going when we got back because we'd sat for a year and we'd done nothing. And then to get off the plane and be told that there was an appeal pending. Um, we came back and we were back where we started nine months previous to that, which was, I don't think, I don't think we felt that we were going to be able to get through it. When uh, I heard, and when the team heard, that on uh, uh, the basis uh, not of anything wrong with the evidence, but on the basis of misbehaviour by some of the jury, that the matter had to be tried again. It, it, it was frustrating, in the, it, it, to put it mildly. I also felt very disappointed for the relatives of the two families who, having sat through one trial, had them to face up to sitting through a second trial. Mr Young was delighted with the uh, Court of Appeals decision to allow his appeal against conviction and um, he and we will start now preparing for the next round which is the retrial at uh, the Old Bailey. Mr Young was remanded in custody until his new trial, which isn't expected to begin, for several months. The feelings at that time were just despair, I think. Um, feeling that uh, it was a nightmare and you'd wake up and uh, it sort of wouldn't be true. And you think to yourself, what's happening? It just, it's just so hard. Some of my parents are they just gutted. They couldn't believe it. To think this man, we know it is the man for, for the evidence we've had. And he's got retrial on a silly, silly thing. So the main reasoning behind this was because the jurors were influenced by something outside of the evidence revealed in the trial. It didn't necessarily have to do with the fact that it was a Ouija board that was used. Um, same thing would have happened if, let's say, they had found a note written by Harry Fuller that wasn't presented in court but influenced the jurors outside of it. So it wasn't specifically because of the Ouija board. It was more the circumstances surrounding Could have been that. anything. Yeah. 
could have been any little piece of evidence or or anything that influenced the jurors, which is, is I think, why they were isolated in the hotel. Right, right. Because you're kind of supposed to be separated from anything. Stay away from all media and stuff. But yeah, but yeah, it's weird that they thought it was a smart idea to get the Ouija board out. It's yeah. so weird. Supposedly there was some pretty heavy drinking before. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. The judge, the prosecutors, the defense, the new jury, and the victim's families all had to relive the case. And once again, they had to listen to that phone call of Nicola calling the police in her last moments. After five weeks, Stephen Young was found guilty again, and everyone hoped that they would never have to listen to a woman dying after being shot several times. New jurors had to experience the trauma again, all because a few decided to get drunk and use the Ouija board to help them decide the outcome of the first trial. That's wild. I've never heard of a Ouija board in actually impacting a, a criminal trial like that before. Yeah, me neither. So with that all being said, you want to enlighten us on the psychology behind the Ouija board. Yeah, I think it's interesting. If you believe in the paranormal or not, I think it's interesting just to look into the psychology behind the yeah. use of Ouija boards. So just to be upfront, I'm not a professional. I'm not a psychologist. This is just... You're stuff. not? What the hell, dude? That's what I hired you for. <laughs> So this is really just stuff that I researched on my own and um, I hope our listeners go and do their own research because I think it's kind of interesting. But essentially what I learned is that basically psychologists have studied Ouija boards for a while. Um, the two biggest factors or the two biggest questions that they consider is why is the planchette moving and why are we so quick to think that it's something paranormal or a spirit behind it? Most of it starts with how we actually perceive the world, which is always through association. It's like cause and effect, right? So it's how our brains are wired. Something happens, we just want to think, well, why did that happen? If the door opens, was it the dog or was it a spirit? Right, something else unseen. So that's just how, how it works. If we actively move the planchette, our brain will obviously know that we're responsible. So they try and explain what the disconnect is. So if we actively move the planchette, our brain will obviously know that we're doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So because we're physically doing it, yeah, our brain is there's a telling signal. our hand to move. Yeah, there's just that the, the electrical signal right. from our brain, so it's obvious. So what's happening with the Ouija board where we think that even if we are moving, why isn't there a signal there? So they think there's actually a small disconnect between our brain and us realizing that we're physically moving our muscles. The planchette moves because of something called the ideomotor effect. It's when our muscles move just a tiny bit without us actually noticing or without even the intention to move it. Interesting. So our subconscious mind is in fact controlling the hand then? Is what the, it, the theory? It could be subconscious or it could just be, I don't know, you, you hold your hand. Well, it's this, that's an interesting point. Cause I think of, I think of this as an example of that, of like, do you tell yourself to breathe? Do you consciously yeah, tell yourself to breathe? Do you consciously tell your heart to pump? Yeah. It just does it. automatic. It's just yeah. all there's part. And, and that's a proven scientific fact. It's like, we don't actively with our active consciousness, 
control a lot of bodily functions it's just happening on its own yep and but it's all stemming from the same place where we perceive consciousness to originate from exactly science so it's along those same lines of like unconscious automatic movements Mm. that your brain is obviously not constantly sending well it is constantly sending signals for you to breathe but you're not acting but you're not initiating the action exactly it's unintentionally exactly okay okay so if you're if you're on board with us still that's that's essentially all right i'm still on the ride i haven't jumped off yet (laughs) okay Okay. all right nice so if the planchette moves because of this our brain is trying to explain why so it's not like our lungs breathing because it's something actually that we're manipulating Mm -hmm. with our hands so we always like cause and effect we always want to understand why something's happening right so it actually depends on the person of how you understand the planchette moving so a lot of people try and explain if you didn't move it was it someone else because usually you play with a ouija, a ouija board right yeah with you other got multiple people. hands usually on the yeah. planchette so you're like is it josh moving it right now that son of a bitch so like we always or is it like legitimately something else right so our brain is constantly trying to understand why some people jump to oh it was a spirit and there's a region of the brain that becomes active and it's called the caudat nucleus, which hmm. deals with motor behaviors and reward-based learning. There's another part of our brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, or shortened to DLPFC, which is another re- region of our brain that tries to figure out who or what caused something to happen. Sometimes it's hard to identify, so the DLPFC might jump to conclusions like it was a spirit or because someone's actively moving it. And this thing of why we jump to conclusions is also a part of our personality. And this is a subject called locus of control, which as I had kind of heard before, this is the only thing that was somewhat familiar. So there's something called an internal locus of control, which is a personality type that feels like they're responsible for the outcomes in their life. If they actively do something, they get a result, right? And then there are people with an external locus of control that is more external factors influence that individual's path in life or yeah something. Okay. exactly so the, that can go along with like fate luck chance okay even like believing in god is more of um an external sure. locus yeah, of control absolutely it's more like you have submitted yourself it's not all in me moving my hand it could be something absolutely. Else, there's right? a, there's a external forces at play that are directing me exactly inadvertently like it's yeah it's like a a relationship thing exactly yep and so every everyone's somewhere on it's not binary it's not your one or the other there's a big spectrum exactly so it's kind of where you land this kind of determines how likely you are to believe in the ouija boards um and in a 2018 study 40 ouija players uh they realized that the more skeptical players had a more internal locus of control. The players who believed that there was something outside of the game moving the planchette had a more external locus of control. Um, so this is essentially the fundamentals or the foundation of believing in the Ouija board. Yeah, I think yeah. it's something to consider. You know, as regardless of if you believe it or not, it's definitely something to consider about yourself when you play how much you're actively or not actively influencing the board, who else could be influencing the board, what else is influencing the board. And then even just knowing yourself, knowing your personality, 
uh, knowing how your brain works. Yeah. Well, it, what's interesting to me is is if you look at the classic scenario of of people playing the Ouija board, they're not in the middle of the park at noon, right under the sun playing the Ouija board. Right. It's always at dark. night. Yep. Dark places, potentially places we consider haunted or spooky. You know, go in the basement at night, shut off all the lights, light a candle, and play by candlelight. You have to think that those external factors, the environment around you, are impacting the game Absolutely. in some way. You know, because yep. then you're you're more apt to be like, you know, you're hearing disembodied voices, or you know, you start hearing sounds and things like that. So you're going to start associating those things that may always be there with your gameplay right versus if the three of us went out here after after recording the middle of the day and sat in the parking lot and tried to do a ouija board <laughs> let's do session, it session you know like is it gonna be is it gonna have that same effect on us as if we came back at midnight tonight and we did it in the same place. Yeah. It's definitely your psych. You're more opening up your psyche right. to access something else. Well, and, and I think that's just a paranormal in general too. And then you look at a lot of these shows out there. I mean, they're always in the dark. It's always at night when they're doing investigations as opposed to in the middle of the day. And you're like, Oh, well, paranormal activity kicks up in the night. You know, right. why, well, why is that? And you know, from a scientific perspective, it would be because of that relationship that your body has and you know none of us are naturally you know we're not nocturnal animals that thrive in the night like what we're usually asleep in the night so it affects us differently as opposed to you know during the daytime we're more alert we're more able to perceive things a, a lot faster so i think the environment definitely has a lot to do with it and i do think there's a lot of paranormal there's a lot of paranormal bullshit out there there's a lot of fake shit that yeah. people are doing and you know a lot of there's a lot of entertainment out there that's based upon people acting and making things up or sounds happening and and, and it's all filmed in the dark so it looks creepy as opposed to like real paranormal activity which oftentimes is so fast and so elusive that you're not able to capture it and you're not able to capture it on film i'm, I'm more so speaking to shows out there yeah yeah um that's you know, there's episode after episode and they always catch stuff. There's always shit going on, you know, yeah. no matter what. And, and it's like, if you put all that money and effort into it, you're paying people to film it. Yeah. You're going out there. You there rent to, a place, something has like, to happen. Yeah. You're like, God, I spent so much money. Like, please, I, something has to happen. So yeah, some people fabricate it or something like and that. So, right? and, and this is what, from my experience is like, I went to the Stanley hotel, famous hotel in, in Estes park, Colorado, um, you know, it's got the shining whole, whole mythology to it. And it's, it's a very haunted hotel. And I truly believe that. And I've seen evidence of that. I've, you feel the energy there. And I went there with the intentions of staying in the Stephen King room. That's supposedly one of the most haunted rooms. So I, I, I brought all this equipment with me, you know, trying EMF, trying to look at all these, um, different things, night vision cameras, uh, you know, IR lights, all these different things. Nothing happened to me the entire night. Yeah. And I, I was almost like trying to will things into existence. Yeah, at some yeah. point. Like I went into the closet and just sat in there and was like measuring the temperature. I was just like, what the hell? But I'd it's like, see I think there's something to that. Like you can't will this and like, you can't always force something to happen. Like 
I almost feel like, especially if you're talking about spirits or ghosts that haunt locations, it's almost as if they know that you're doing this. Right. And so they purposely don't. So you caught nothing the whole night? I caught nothing on that trip. Previous to that, I was up there with family and we were taking a ghost tour during the day, mind you. And I actually have this on 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 footage somewhere. It's in one of my old vlogs on YouTube. And we're in this stairwell. And the guide is telling us how this is like a vortex of energy here. Um, and as we're standing there, out of the quarter, corner of my eye, a door to a room was wide open. Nobody's near it. Windows aren't open. Nothing like that. There were, And the door swings almost shut but then pulls back and shuts completely nobody touched the door there's no draft coming through because i even walked over after i was like windows got to be open like there's got to be a draft or something nothing like that but it was just happened to be going on while we were there talking about this vortex of energy in this stairwell and it was like wow maybe that's how you know it's just kind of subtle things that happen that you just you know, we didn't even catch it really till like after the fact because we had a, had a camera filming her and it was like kind of behind her to the side. And so it was just like weird that I could get that sort of potentially paranormal activity on camera. But then I go in there like ghost hunting and get absolutely nothing, yeah. and I'm, you know, and you're like, oh, damn. And you could have easily fabricated something out of that, which I think a lot of people too. But props to you for not bullshitting. No, no. I mean, I was just like, I want to see if I can legitimately capture i set up a like a camera and had it film all night long in there to see if after we went to bed in the room if stuff was stuff would happen in there and there's just nothing nothing yeah and this is the haunted haunted hotel room yeah supposedly tons of people have experiences in there and we had nothing happen to us but that's the weird thing about is i think it's just it's there is no control over it you know if if this is a real thing it happens when it wants to happen yeah, and it will reveal it to you when it wants to, but you can't be like, go into it, be like, I'm going to experience something paranormal. Yeah. Even Ed Warren has talked about like the, if there is entities out there, like it knows that you have a camera, right? It knows that it might be, you might just be trying to capture it. So have you ever used a Ouija board though? I have not because I was told, like what, I said, beginning by my mo- <laughs> not scared. I would definitely do it. Um, but I've also done so much research on it that it's like there, there's different ways to go about using it too. Like there's, you know, you, you can use it in conjunction with conducting rituals, uh, which is interesting, which that would be more along the lines of what I'd be interested in is like taking it up a notch, not just playing the Ouija board in the normal way, right. but like actually following a, you know, a witch's recommendation for rituals that you can do both good and bad okay. and see what happens, which involve you know, involves candles and other, other materials other than just, just the traditional, uh, Ouija board. But I would definitely, I'm definitely open to doing it. I think I'd have to do it in secret. Cause I think, um, my wife would probably be kind of pissed <laughs> yeah, if yeah. I did it and then something went wrong <laughs> and Fair. I brought that sort of, negative energy or entity back to my house or 
um, had bad luck. I don't want that either. I, I could, I'll take the hit for this. I'll be the lightning rod. All right. I'll, I'll as do long it. as I'll you're willing to room. sacrifice yourself. Oh yeah. Okay. I bet All right. Ready. Let's do Come it. Come on. Well, what's interesting, we were talking about this before the episode and Daniel's actually has a, has an experience with the Ouija board. Care to share? I would love to. Okay. So enlighten us. When I was a bit younger, I was a bit of a, a rapscallion, if you would. Shocker. <laughs> Shocker. Really? <laughs> and, uh, my buddy's house, uh, we had all experienced paranormal things in his house, including me, and I consider myself a skeptic. Um, so we brought out a Ouija board to try and, you know... Drum some stuff yeah, up. Yeah, drum some stuff up, see, see what, what happened. I mean, it was, you know, witching hour, 3 a.m., we went to his basement, lit candles, the whole nine yards. Um, and I... I don't know if you guys know, like, the, the the basic rules when you're doing the Ouija board, you know, always say goodbye, right. be respectful. You don't know what questions. you're communicating with necessarily unless exactly. you specifically ask for its name and what are you and things exactly. like that. I said, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> I never said goodbye. I was I was shit talking it the whole time. I was trying to egg it on. I was saying, you know, you know, haunt me, haunt me. Oh, you're Ooh, like, damn like bring it on like you got nothing like i said i was i was a little punk <laughs> josh is like i'm definitely never doing the i'm not bringing you to it yeah. <laughs> hey, he austin said to be the lightning rod i'll be the vessel okay <laughs> all right. Perfect. um but after that experience i mean i had some bad luck for the next like month or so but nothing happened and then we never experienced any sort of like paranormal anything it's not like the candles blew out all of a sudden nope. or in fact, door shut. Nothing. In fact, every time we went to that house from then on, we never experienced anything at all. Do you think so? Do you attribute your bad luck? Was it like really bad luck or just no. kind of like more, more inconveniences than it was okay. like horrible world ending luck? So if you think, think about it, if you were truly taunting an entity, whether it's a demon or a spirit, haunt me <laughs> and the worst thing is like maybe you spilled your coffee on the ground or something you know you dropped yeah. your coffee mug or something or yeah. you know you got into a fender bender or something like that best case scenario yeah. right there right know? right would you say do you feel like it was attributed to your ouija board session or no i mean i definitely started to think that it was attributed to my ouija board session but like i said it was never and it wasn't like horrible bad things like i would tear a shirt you know it would get caught in a door handle you know like that kind of small stuff but nothing ever horrible happened i so i i personally am not a believer in ouija boards and i'll happily do one with you austin like Sweet. i said i'll shit talk it again yeah, <laughs> let's do it let's well do it. again and if anybody out there has more experience than we do with the ouija board especially those of you out there who are practicing witches um who do rituals on a daily basis, please enlighten us on, would it be smart to attempt to conjure a specific demon through the Ouija board, which I was just reading about one called Zozo, um, is one of the, the demons that a lot of people will reach out to through the Ouija board. But there are ways to, which then you're not only, I mean, because again, it's like the Ouija board's this tool, this instrument, potentially help make the connection but but there's a lot of other ways to make the connections right. without the use of the ouija board so if you team it up with actually practicing a ritual that people have done for a very long time no i mean if we're gonna do it i'd rather do it the okay. right way yeah not just get drunk and like yeah th throw our little hasbro <laughs> yeah. board yeah, out there. yeah 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 so and, and we'll leave it open to 
you out there, if you have had experiences with Ouija board, please enlighten us on which way should we go? Should we do a ritual during the Ouija board session? Should we just start out with just a normal Ouija board session and go from there? I'm curious to know what a more experienced practitioner out there would, would recommend. Yeah. Because I think we're really open to it at the end of the day. It's like, I think we've all realized that there's a lot of shit out there that we just don't know. There's a lot of unseen. I, I think both of you are willing to accept that there's unexplained phenomenon, correct? Yes. You believe that there's some phenomenon that exists in the universe that has no scientific explanation. Maybe we will one day. Hopefully science will get there and we'll be able to discover it and study it and actually understand it on a fundamental level what's actually happening. But for right now, it's this sort of mystical thing. Yeah, no, I'm I'm totally on board. I mean, if you're not on board with that, you're kind of a stick in the mud. Like, there's <laughs> what's the what's the fun if you just like no everything's science. It's like kind of boring. I was gonna say that you. I was judging your answer on that because it determines your future on the show. So oh, shit. you answered it correctly. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But no, I, I think it's important to be open to it, and and I think I I really admire people who are grounded in in a particular belief and you know, whether it be a religion or other sort of spiritual practice that, you know, maybe you, you, it, that for you provides you the path or, or guidebook to, to life and to, you know, nobody likes to sit around and, and just think about the unknown because obviously you start going down that rabbit hole and you can get real scary real quick. You know, you start thinking about, well, what about this? What about that? What's the point of life? Why am I here? What happens when I die? All these <laughs> questions that run through my head every night. And, you know, I attempt to try to answer them in different ways, depending on what I learned during that day or, or some type of, um, I, I personally love to dwell in that space of like, what, what is this? Where are we? And, you know, really, you know, kind of like leave the, leave the ego behind and just kind of float in this, this ether, I guess, and kind of just like consider the possibilities. And I think when you do that, you start realizing that as much as some of this just seems absolutely outrageous and fake and, and likely, I mean, there's so many fakes and dupes out there that there is this part that is beautiful and mystical and just captures your, your, not only your imagination, but just can capture your ever, you know, the very essence of your being. And you're just like, Oh man, I just want to know like, like DMT experiences. You know what I mean? Like it's just such a profound experience that we can't fully explain how it works where we go is it just all an illusion is it a are we hallucinating and that's the extent of it or are we actually being transported to another dimension or another realm that was like and i think all that that whole world i guess mysticism in general is just so interesting to me and that's why i love diving into it on this show so um i hope you guys will join me yeah i'm open to (laughs) it I'm in. And if we need to make a blood sacrifice, I heard Danny was open to it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he gets bruised in MMA quite a bit, so we'll just wait the next time he rips his rips his head open. We'll take some blood from you. There we go. I'll be nicer to the demon the second time around. I was going to say, if you're the blood sacrifice, man, I'd, I'd show it some respect. Maybe, but <laughs> but in, all, uh, in all fairness and good times, that is it for today's episode we'll wrap it up there let us know in the comments though if you're watching on youtube share your experiences with us well we'll definitely be looking uh to read through some of that and you know we've thought about too in future episodes 
potentially covering our viewers, listener stories in both the paranormal sense, maybe it's Ouija board sessions. Let us know if that'd be of, of interest to you. Obviously, they're the biggest rebuttal to that is oh people will fake stuff make shit up yeah and make shit up and this will just be an episode of creepy pasta or something yeah but if you have a way to authenticate your story to us in some way maybe that could be something we do but let us know in the comments i'm really interested to hear your just overall thoughts on the ouija board you think it's bullshit you think it's just a game or is it something more than that but that is it for us today we'll see you guys next week in a future episode of lights out until then lights out everybody.